Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Harry Sapienza. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Harry as a person. Professor Sapienza is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Sapienza is a professor emeritus at University of Minnesota. His early research and scholarship examined relationship between entrepreneurs and investors in the US, Europe, and Asia. He contributed to research on born global firms and to internationalization of entrepreneurial ventures. His work utilizes knowledge and learning theories to study the effects of early internationalization on the growth and the learning trajectories of entrepreneurial firms. He has published over 60 papers in a variety of our top journals. Harry was the program chair for the entrepreneurship division of the Academy of Management. He sat on the editorial board of Academy of Management Discoveries. Thank you, Harry, for joining us. Thank you. Nice to see you. Thanks. Uh, Harry, what did you want to become when you were a child? I wanted to become a baseball player. That was my first uh, dream. Uh, I, was, I was in love with baseball and then I guess uh, later on when I got into high school and I realized I was never going to be a professional baseball player, um, I wanted to be an English teacher. And, and that I did uh, uh, for a good while and, and, then, and then changed careers after about 10, 12 years. Wow. Uh, I mean, you write very well. Maybe I, I was, uh, when I was looking at your bio, uh, maybe your English teaching background was one of the contributing factors to how well you write. Um, well, I, yeah, clearly. I mean, I, I think that it, it, I didn't, it didn't occur to me how important that skill was going to be in this, in this professional career. I mean, I, it, you know, to be honest, I ended up pursuing the PhD largely because the lifestyle of a professor appealed to me and not because I had any desire to be a great scholar or, or whatever, but I thought, you know, I, I really like students and I like teaching and I'll see if I can do okay with research, but I didn't really know. Of all the things you could have chosen for research, why did you choose uh, management and focused on um, uh, small firms, entrepreneurial firms? How did it come about? Well, first of all, I guess um, I was interested in the in the people side of business, and so management. Uh, you know, I I ended up actually I was going to the University of Maryland um, and. Uh, did my PhD with a focus in strategic management. So I was interested in, you know, the whole firm outcomes and that perspective. But a lot of it having to do with how the, the personal perspectives of people influenced the decisions they made in the directions they went in. I never studied entrepreneurship or international at that time. When it came to choosing a dissertation topic. The topic I wanted to study was the question, why do firms change their strategies? And uh, 
one of my professors said, now yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. One way to maybe look at this would be to uh, go and talk to venture capital firms and map the plans and the, and the changes in the, the plans, the strategies of businesses from the very beginning. So that got me into this area of, um, well, entrepreneurship. It turns out that, that um, the venture capitalists were not really that interested in the question of why ventures change their strategy. Uh, then one of my other professors said, well, you know, maybe they're not that interested in that, but here's, he had done some work on the, on the relationships between top management in large companies and all of their different portfolio companies in their SBUs. He said, maybe they would be interested in the question of how do they manage these various relationships with different portfolio companies and how does it progress over time? And, uh, and, and when do they contribute more or less value? And they were interested in that. So then they were, now they were interested in talking with me. But a, you know, uh, a side effect of that decision to, to pursue this question of how do, they, how do they manage their relationships with different portfolio companies was that the person that I had been mainly working with and they were, and they were, they were both, by the way, they were both assistant professors just building their careers. He wasn't that interested in that topic. And he was quite annoyed that I had spoken to a, another professor and decided that I would pursue a different topic. And in fact, so that, so he then refused to be on my dissertation committee because he didn't want to go in this other direction. And I, being a kind of a scared doctoral student, didn't really want to change. I, I mean, I, now I, I had spoken to venture capitalists and gotten their interests on uh, being in this study. So I wanted to continue to pursue that. But um, so, you know, no matter what I did, I couldn't convince the other fellow who I worked with a lot to, you know, to, to stay with me. And that was a big learning lesson that I'll, you know, in one of your later questions, I'll come back to that. But, you know, what I didn't realize, and I think a lot of doctoral students don't realize, is that their, their professors are people with feelings and they're trying to get something out of it too. And, and uh, you know, if you, if you are in the process, if you switch from one to another, that may have, repercussions. I mean, eventually I repaired that relationship, but it was a, it was a good long time. Uh, and this is happening in Maryland, right? When that was in Maryland. Maryland. Yeah. Who was the so, most uh, influential person uh, on your uh, academic upbringing? Uh, who was your... Well, I would say that, I would say that <laughs> Ken Smith was, and then, and uh, Anil Gupta secondarily, uh, and Neil ended up being the chair of my dissertation. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, Ken was the, the fellow that I'd worked with most before, who wasn't on my committee, 
but had been very influential in my development. And he, he was an extremely hands-on and close person. He put a lot into his doctoral students. Um, so I would say those two were the, were the main two influences at Maryland for me. Thank you. Now, uh, what's something uh, that you wouldn't put on your CV that people might find interesting about you? Something that people might find interesting that's not on my CV. Yep. Well, there are a lot. I mean, there are a lot of things because uh, you know, in a way, um, I, you know, I hate to say this, but you know, my career uh, was an enabler of my life uh, rather than the other way around. So you know, I um, not only did I teach English and have a master's in medieval English literature. You know, I, I played in a rock band when I was in high school. I had a son born to me when I was 17. I, um, I'm, I'm very into to music, blues, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I guess some of those things. <laughs> so uh, do, do you play something? I play drums and I play bass guitar a little bit. Try, I've been trying to learn it a little bit more lately. Perfect. Um, if you didn't choose academia, what would you choose to do? Well, I probably would have tried to, I would have, I would probably try to be a writer of some sort. And, you know, it's interesting in, when I was in high school and I had dreamed of being a, an English teacher, I thought I would like to do writing, creative writing. Uh, short stories and poetry and so forth. And I fooled around with the poetry for a good bit. And, and in fact, now, now that I'm retired, I still, I'm teaching a cup of a poetry class uh, online with some people because I love that. Um, the interesting thing, I mean, I'd like to be a writer. Uh, one of the things you learn, or one of the things I learned subsequently is that Gladwell's principle about practicing, I think so many people end up thinking you're either really good at something or you're not so good at it. But it turns out that you have to work at things a lot to be good. You know, we, we tend to believe you're either, oh, I'm a good writer, I'm a bad writer. No, you, you might have some, some talents in that direction, but you really have to develop them. And so I, I would probably be a writer. And one of the interesting things about writing poetry and fiction versus writing professional papers is that one of the things you try to do in writing professional papers is very different from what you try to do when you're writing poetry or fiction. In, in writing an academic paper, you're trying to be absolutely clear, unambiguous, leaving no room for alternative confusing interpretations of what you're saying. Whereas in writing fiction or poetry, suggestion and gaps and leaving room for the, for the reader to create their own imagination of what's going on is a big part of what's appealing. So you're really trying to do different things in those kinds of writing. Well, I'm thinking about the Russian writers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and that's, you know, and, and if you're 
again, if you think about literature, uh, a lot of times things can be quite confusing or hard to disentangle. And if, and here's the other thing that I came to realize as a student. So as a, as a doctoral student, you know, you do hold these, uh, these scholars way up on high and you go, my gosh, these people are so brilliant. And, I, and if I don't understand something, it's because of my inadequacies. But I came to, to believe and realize that if you don't understand something in what they've written, that's their failing, not your reader. It's their, it's their responsibility to make things understandable. Sure. My, my formal training is in economics. And uh, when I was reading the classics in economics, which is from 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, uh, th th those papers are beautiful, beautifully written, beautifully crafted, almost as if they are um, uh, pieces of art. I mean, they are not uh, academic papers. They, they tell everything. They are the basis of the field. Uh, especially in IB, I mean, uh, most of the 1910, 1920s papers are just beauties. And I'm thinking if it was possible to write like that today and send something to Jibs, it will be disrejected. It will be <laughs> found too, uh, uh, too artistic, right? It, it's, a, it's a completely uh, different mentality. The, the focus has shifted. Uh, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think that that the way academia has shifted, and a lot of it, I think, I, you know, has been a, a reductionism kind of uh, thing, where where we look, we try. One of my one of my old uh, dissertation people, who was who was actually a venture capitalist and a professor at Harvard, said, you know, he called it physics envy. You know that this this idea that we can know something with certainty, and we get he says the the topics get narrower and narrower and narrower, uh, uh, particularly empirically. So the the logical conclusion of that is we learn more and more about less and less <laughs> until we know everything about nothing. And and so I I absolutely agree with you that you know an expansive, thoughtful uh, treatment of a topic, of, of important topics is, you're, you're right, it would just be rejected immediately. And, and uh, so that is something we've lost. Uh, and, uh, you know, things end up being, we, we're very, we're very data-driven and, and, and very much less thought-driven, which to me is a shame. This came up before with a couple of the uh, high priests in, in our field. Uh, who should write the next big theory piece? Uh, is, is it the assistant professor or PhD students? Uh, reminding us of Ronald Coase's early years, or is it going to be the, uh, the old sage professor who has seen everything in his 60 year career? What was your take on that one? Well, you know, I think that uh, it would, the older professors are in more of a position to do so because they can afford to fail. They can afford to not have something published. Uh, now, if they want to put that, 
the, the effort into it, uh, they might do it. Uh, the, the downside, and, and this is, you know, is you have to do a lot of unlearning when you're older. You know, one, one of the things that, that I had pursued in my, in some of my thinking was the fact that, you, you know, the, the more you get to know, the more you assume away things that you shouldn't assume away uh, because you think you know. And it's more likely that doctoral, the younger faculty would have these deeper insights, things would occur to them that they wouldn't reject out of hand. Now, whether they should pursue that or not, from a practical point of view, maybe they shouldn't. But on the other hand, I think they might be, you know, that's one thing I would encourage students to do is to believe in their thoughts that go against the conventional or received wisdom. Uh, they may need to put it on hold for a while, but, but really take it to heart and don't forget about it and, and come back to it when they're in a position to handle that. But, you know, another thing that, that you, you know, almost all of the, uh, you know, research universities tell their students, look, work on, you know, don't bother with papers that might be, uh, might go to some lower tier journal, you know, start at the top and go down. And this is the way to proceed. Whereas I've come to believe that that's exactly wrong. I've come to believe that, that, that writing and scholarship is a craft. And that, you know, Beethoven didn't start writing his most magnificent uh, works right at the beginning. You start little, keep doing it, send little things out, do a lot of work, learn your craft, learn how this, how people respond and build up. So if you, if you write many things and you even have to pub publish them in, in lesser things, you're learning in the process. So I guess I would say that uh, in some ways, the older professors have, from a practical point of view, are more able to, to do that kind of next greatest piece, whether they, whether they want to and whether they can get over the, uh, you know, and that's something you, one should do during your careers to try to keep your mind nimble and not to take everything uh, as, as given. Um, the younger <laughs> ones, are more, those things are more likely to occur to them, but they're less likely to pursue them for good practical reasons. Publishing in lower ranked journals uh, and yet learning the craft while doing, uh, doing the writing uh, portion, right. obviously. Uh, what, what, what's the uh, reputational effect of uh, having many B-level, C-level journals under your uh, belt in your CV? And then well, all of a sudden you come up with an AMR. You know, I, I think that, um, I guess it, you know, it, it, it does have a, there is a potential, I would call it a small drag on things uh, because you're going to have faculty who, you know, look at it and they can, and they'll dismiss these things. You know, he's, he's writing, you know, stuff for lots of little crappy thing. I, I remember that, you know, I had recruited Shakur Zara to come to the University of Minnesota and, and he had so many pieces, he had so much writing 
and much of it was in really lousy journals, to be quite frank. But, and I made the argument to the rest of our faculty. I said, okay, well, if, if this fellow has, you know, 120 pieces now, if you take, if you take the 80 pieces you don't, you know, you think are in, in journals you don't care, then throw them away. He still has three times as much as you in the top journals. How can you, how can you critique a guy for that? And it, you know, it has not stopped him from being, you know, a chair professor and so on and so forth. It's not, it is not the normal pattern, but I would say you're gonna learn better if you, if you don't follow the normal pattern. Now, yes, you're gonna to have to follow, you know, you're gonna to have to suffer the slings and arrows of some people who have, who have, you know, their prejudices, but, you know, it's kind of like pursuing either entrepreneurship or, or international. When I was a young scholar, neither of those fields were, were respected at all. And if you were publishing those things, people were thinking, oh, you're a crap uh, scholar and you have to make a decision. Do I want to do what I want to do or do I want to take a safer path? And, that's, you know, it's a tough it's a tough call. But, you know, uh, you know, you make you, you do what you're comfortable with. You should do what you're really comfortable with and not what you think everybody else thinks you should do. Looking back, uh, uh, what was the regret for you? Do you have any regrets in life? A regret in life is not learning a second language. <laughs> I guess, and that, you know, and, and again, especially somebody who, You know, I consider myself not a great international scholar. I've done a lot of stuff. I've been very interested, but not, not a great international scholar. That's not where the core of my work is, but I love international. And I love, you know, I love different cultures. And I wish that I had learned at least a second language early on. The fellow who I was talking to earlier who uh, is... Uh, Jauma Villanueva, he's at Rutgers. He speaks seven languages. You know, I mean, I, and, and he speaks them flawlessly. And, and that's, you know, that, that just amazes me. Uh, how about your biggest failure and what you learned from it? Uh, how was your biggest failure? Well, my biggest, in my mind, uh, not so much uh, in publishing per se, because every, every you know, I'll make an analogy of baseball to, to, to publishing, you know, in, in baseball, uh, hitting, getting three hits out of 10 is, is a, makes a great career. So you fail seven times and you succeed three times and, and nobody ends up counting your failures. They count your successes. My greatest failure was the one I, I said was, was not realizing, uh, that, You know, not being able to figure out how to keep my good friend and mentor, Ken Smith, on my dissertation committee. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, okay, how about research? Uh, things that you see uh, after all these years, uh, things that we should have covered more, more of, and uh, things that we have omitted, maybe we neglected to work on in more detail. What are some of the topics for the next five to 10 years? Well, you know, I, I think that 
Um, I, I don't know about specific things. I think that uh, in the international arena, uh, I, I think that understanding in a deeper sense, the role of culture in cross country relationships uh, is, could be done better and, and more effectively. I think some, I, I, I think, yeah, we have a little bit of theory on that, but I think it, it needs to be advanced. And there's a multi, you know, there's this, and, it, and it's very difficult because I, as we, I, you know, as I said, the, the, the boundaries have gotten narrower and narrower. And so trying to bring in perspectives from a lot of different areas and, and to both, both theoretically and empirically, uh, organizational level wise, I think is, in other words, I think a much greater complexity of understanding is, is needed, but is unlikely in the current, you know, the current prejudices of, you know, of the top journals. Why is that? Well, uh, so I want to ask about curiosity. I want to ask about creativity in research and how right. you uh, approached, how, what was your process for coming up with creative ideas and how did you fuel your curiosity? And uh, touching up on the biases of the journals or the current uh, approach of the uh, journals that are limiting uh, the focus. Uh, well, you know, there's an interesting paradox in, in creativity and, uh, and publication. <clears throat> and that is that the, the, the paradox is that so something has to be new in some way, but not so new <laughs> in another way. In other, uh, so people don't, they don't readily accept expanding or, or or going across the boundaries too much. So you have to be, uh, I, I would liken it to, you know, the, the business of being a scholar is a business. I mean, you're, you're, you are creating a new product and you have to sell that product in a market. And it's, and you, it's not pure scholarship or knowledge because I, I like to use for my, when I'm mentoring students, the analogy of being a car salesman who's got a, who's got a you know, let's say you have a vast set of cars and a, and, and a, a customer comes in to, to, uh, to buy one. And what many people try to do is to get them to buy the car that they think they should have rather than finding out what kind of car do you really want and can I create that? So, so because of the fact that, you know, if you can't get anything published, you can never contribute to the, the scholarship. I would rather compromise a little bit what I think or feel to, to reach the markets that's there than to hold on to ever, all of my beliefs and not have it published. So I, I think of every, every time I start a research project, it's like creating a new business. 
And my question is, what is what you know, what is it that people want, and what is it that I can bring them that they want? And it, but it it is a um, it's a highly risky endeavor because you don't know. You have to do a lot of work. You have to dig a lot of holes before you find what people really want. And and you have to, you know, you may you may be collecting data for two years. A, you don't know if you're going to get the results. B, you don't know if you get them, whether people are really going to be interested or not. So you do, you do like, a, like a good entrepreneur, do you try to, ahead of time, talk to people about your ideas, see if they're intrigued with them or not. And if you are, I mean, it's a combination of, I, I think that, you know, for a long time, if I think about my, the way my, my career progressed, I, um, I started out being very, very, very practical. Uh, and when I say that, what I mean is, is this. Um, once I, you know, first I, I pursued English literature as a career from, because that, that was where my passion and love was. And after a while, I, I found that I couldn't make the kind of living I wanted to make. So I changed careers. And I, and I said, okay, well, I can, I can be a professor. And I asked, well, where, where are their jobs? Well, it turned out there are great jobs, a lot of opportunities in accounting. So I started my PhD um, program as an accounting major. But one month into the program, I said, I, this is boring the hell out of me. I can't do this. I've got, so, and I, and I knew that, that I loved the idea of strategic management and, you know, bigger human questions. So I switched my major. So I started practical and I switched my major. Then, you know, you, you, as, as I said, I got to the point after I had finished my, my uh, PhD of saying, should I, you know, I've got all this stuff that I've been doing in entrepreneurship, but is anybody going to give me tenure with entrepreneurship on my, on my Vita? And I had to make a choice. Do I continue down this road or do I say, okay, let me just go back to mainstream strategy and pursue that and be practical. So, and I eventually came to the understanding that you have to be both practical and follow your passion. And that the most practical thing you can do is to follow your passion. Because if you're going to have, if you're going to be good at anything, it's going to take a tremendous amount of effort and work. And nobody wants to go in every day and do a tremendous amount of work on something that they don't really care that much about. So you cannot just be practical if, if, if that means sacrificing, you know, what you care about. And I would say the same thing is, you know, a lot of times people ask the question, you know, what's the, what's the next big thing? And some, some scholars are very good at picking out wh where the, you know, where the, the waves are breaking and, and getting on that new wave. I I've never been that great at that. I've, I've been more, what do I really want to do? And can I find a way to make that interesting to others? So if somebody would say, what's the next big thing in this area? I would say to them, Whatever you do next, that's what the next big thing is. 
make the future. Don't try to don't try to predict it and jump onto it. Now again, some people are good at it and they can see that happening early on and they're flexible enough to get on top of the new thing. But you know, I, I try to create that new thing rather than imagine what other people might be doing. I, I don't know. I, I probably went all all way, way no, off. No, this is exactly uh, what, what we are actually with Asla, Shirin Alvarez, and Jay. Uh, we we're working on creation versus discovery debate. This is exactly what the story is. Uh, you know, people are trying to, you know, with a Porter Porter esque way, they're trying to uh, find the uh, they want to discover and uh, approach entrepreneurship is only a, a theory of discovery. Um, and there's also the creation sites. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, and of course, creation involves involves discovery, but it but it also involves not discovery, putting things together or making new things that that are not there. And if someone were to say, "Well, how do you how do you teach somebody to create?" Well, you you, you get them to to do something. You know, if, if you if you follow the, you know, as I said, I was very into music and I've been I've been reading this uh, things on the Beatles and the way that they wrote their music and so on. And they you, they started with very simple stuff, but they started by doing it. they started by mimicking and then and combining other things. And sooner or later, their own voices started to emerge and they started to do many things that nobody else was doing. And they started to bring in, you know, if you look at their their early stuff, it's it's like straight ahead rock and roll. They started working with George Martin. They started bringing in, they got stuck in the studio. They started bringing in all kinds of different uh, instruments and elements and things. And they were popular enough that they could do that, that they had created an audience for themselves that would tolerate this stuff that it had it been the first thing they ever did nobody would have accepted it. So it's, you know, you, you, you learn to create by creating, if that makes any sense. It makes very, very much sense. This is gorgeous. This is, thank you. I'm actually taking notes uh, for the paper. Uh, about advice. Um, I mean, you, you did give a lot of advice. You, you did uh, talk about uh, what people, young scholars, uh, colleagues, uh, junior faculty should do. In your opinion, what should they not do? Or what are the things that, what, what are the mistakes that they are doing that you see repeatedly? Uh, well, um, they need to learn to have faith in themselves, number one. I mean, and, and there are, uh, you know, you have, a, of course, you have a range of doctoral students, but, uh, and, and you have, the best students are those who take advice, but don't need too much advice. The problem students are those that are, that are so afraid of doing their own thing, they will do nothing without the approval of their mentors the other so you have you have the problem students are at two two ends of the spectrum those that have no confidence in themselves and those that have so much confidence in themselves and so much 
arrogance that they don't listen to the advice that they get from their professors. And whether that's because, because of ego or whether they're afraid that people will steal their ideas, I don't know. But I think they have to develop trust. They have both in themselves and in the people that they may be working with. If they, if they find that they cannot you, you trust somebody that they may be working with, then don't work with them. But you, you know, you can't, I, I, I think working, you know, so many people, they're afraid of others stealing their ideas. I think you need to share your ideas and bounce them off of other people in order to make them better. And, you know, so many are afraid that somebody will steal their idea, but, but getting from an idea to a completed project and, and thought is such a big, long thing. Nobody, you know, if I tell you that I, that I think such and such variable is very important and that's my idea, that, that's far from, from developing anything. The other thing I would say is not to, not to fall into the trap of that's already been done. Nothing has already been done completely. Every, there's, there are nuances and depths of things that, that need to be fully explored. Um, if, you know, if, you don't, if you really think that there's some received wisdom out there that doesn't make sense to you, Try to, try to explore why it doesn't and, and where you might go with it. I'm thinking right now, for example, um, you know, I, I had, the, I had the, the notion that, that, uh, that the literature on dynamic capabilities was, was flawed because for two reasons, one, the definitions of what a dynamic capability was exactly was, was very unclear. Had people, some people saying that it was the capability of generating new ideas. And some were saying that it was the capability of generating new ideas. In other words, that the capability was not dyna dynamic, but the environment in which you were doing it was dynamic. Uh, so I was dissatisfied with that. Shaker Zara, I was working, Shaker uh, had seen a call for papers in journal management, and he wanted to do a review piece on dynamic capabilities in new firms. So I had, I had two things on my mind. Where did dynamic capability, if, if we even believe that dy dynamic capabilities exist, where do they come from? And then the other question is, what the hell are they exactly? And uh, so, you know, we pursued this, my dissatisfaction with the definition of dynamic capabilities and also sort of saying, can we create a model of where, you know, once we've, once we've given our definition, where do they come from? And what does that suggest about the development, use and change of those in organizations, young organizations at the beginning? Because mm -hmm. most, most of the stuff was in, uh, most of the theorizing was done in large established organizations. But um, so anyway, I think uh, the, the fact that, that, you know, something was under my craw about the way that 
you know, and I don't, first of all, I don't, I tend, I could disagree with people, but I don't like the idea of criticizing their work. I, I think more of, of, of critiquing it and offers, offering something else. The other thing about that for students is to remember that they are becoming writers, they are becoming creators, they are not becoming critics. We teach, oddly enough, we, we, we teach them by getting them to critique other people's work. It's easy to critique or say what's wrong with somebody else's work. It's much more difficult to create something of worth for other people. So focus your energy on how you can make something better. You know, yeah, if, if you can say, you know, I know that there's something wrong with this, then that's, that's important because it, it identifies an opportunity, but it's only an opportunity as a scholar if you can offer some way of addressing that weakness, if you see it as a weakness. True. This was very interesting. Uh, what's, the, <laughs> uh, what's the question I should have asked you about heaven? <sighs> I guess uh, maybe what's the relationship between a scholarly life and one's personal life. Oh, here we go. And, 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 and I would say that, that, again, for me, uh, all right, so here's the first, everybody, every person really has to ask themselves, what do I really want? What am I, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I pursuing a scholarly career? What is it that it's, that I want, that it's doing for me or that I want to contribute? Because sometimes people, they, they do it without really asking themselves whether it's satisfied, what part of themselves is it satisfied? So, I, you know, I, I would say always keeping, you know, for me, the, the balance between my scholarly life and my personal life was, was a very important thing for me to preserve because the reason that I pursued it was not because I wanted to be a scholar, but because I loved doing the things that scholars do. And I thought there were a couple of things I wanted. I wanted to be able to go to my daughter's first grade, first class. I wanted to read in her class. I wanted to be part of her life. And what being a scholar can do, you've got to work many, many hours, but you can, you have much flexibility to arrange things in ways that can allow you to do that. Then the next, and then the other, then I said, well, I want to publish, not because I want to publish per se, but because it's going to give me the freedom. It, you know, if I'm not happy at a university, I can leave if I build up a good career. If I can't, you know, if I can't build up a good career, I can't leave and I can't stay. So I had in the back of my mind exactly why I was doing what I was doing, but it had, I mean, it was a second career for me. And I had said to myself at the time that I went into it, okay, I'm gonna try this. And if I succeed, great, I'll keep going. If I don't succeed, so what? I'll, you know, I was happy before, I'll be happy again. Don't put, you know, don't tie all of your being and all of your identity into that. 
there's a lot of, there's many things you can't control. I've seen many people who, you know, they, they, they found that they didn't, they weren't really happy doing what they were doing, but they put so much into it that they couldn't get themselves out of it. Um, so anyway, I, I would say, you know, examine yourself and examine the relationship between what satisfies you and what you're doing. And my favorite part of the career was mentoring students. Perfect. Henry, uh, thank you so much for this interesting uh, interview. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Thank you so much.